This episode of The Minimalists is 100% advertisement-free. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit us at theminimalists.com slash donate. Enjoy the show. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we talk about what it means to live a meaningful life with less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together... We are the minimalists. Yes, we are. Welcome to episode number 12. Today, Ryan and I are going to chat about yo money. Mo money, mo problems. That, that's true, but, but also less money, mo problems. It just seems that money Funny how that works. Is, is the underlying problem here, and we'll, we'll be able to talk about that a lot today. You know, I think really debt is killing us these days. I feel like it's, it's infringing on our freedom. Did you know that the average American carries four credit cards in his or her wallet? And one in 10 Americans has 10 or more active credit cards. And that was me. I, I used to have 14 active credit cards. Remember wow. like the, the old Navy, you'd go to buy like a T-shirt and they're like, save 15%. And you're like, well, I'd be dumb not to. Well, the truth is I was dumb to do it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the average uh, credit card debt in America, just credit card debt is over $15,000 per person. Uh, last year, the United States government uh, issued as much new, new debt as, as the rest of the governments of the world combined. And, and our total consumer debt, just in the United States, now I know that people all over the world are, are listening to this, but just in the United States, as an example, the, the total amount of consumer debt is roughly $12 trillion. Wow. $12 trillion. And, and look, I couldn't even wrap my head around it because if you write that number out, like not, not as words, but if you just write that number 12 and then some zeros and then some more zeros and some more zeros, and you're like, did I, did I misplace the decimal point? This looks like a fake number. And so to put that in perspective, uh, uh, we, we found some examples for you. If you went out and spent $1 every single second, $1, That'd be pretty hard to do to keep spending $1 every single second. But if you were to go do that and not sleep at all, so just spending dollars every second, $1 every second, it would take you more than 31,000 years to spend $1 trillion. But of course, we have $12 trillion in debt. Uh, In fact, if you uh, went out and spent $1 million a day, Every single day, if you would have done that since the birth of Christ, you still wouldn't have spent $1 trillion by now. Wow. We have $12 trillion in debt. And, and you see, we are, are crippled by debt because we are, are crippled by consumption. And, and so we found this thing called minimalism as a way to help us let go and, and take back control of our lives, take back control of our finances. And ultimately, we have to let go of this excess so that we can move on and, and live a, a, a freer life. And, and to do that, we want to help everyone today sort of take an inventory of their lives, their, their financial lives, and, and move on to a point where the money woes are, are no longer hurting 
the most important areas of life. For me, for the longest time, my money woes were affecting my my health, my relationships. Uh, they were keeping me from pursuing what I was passionate about or cultivating a passion. They they kept me from from growing as an individual, and I certainly didn't have the money to contribute to my community because I was blowing all kinds of money, and I had massive amounts of debt. Uh, to prove it. Now, before we get into all of our, our listener questions today, we have a bunch of voicemails, a bunch of lightning round questions from Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram. Uh, we have some really good news. And I know some of you, a lot of you actually have been tweeting us and emailing us and saying, hey, what happened? You guys are going on tour, but I tried to get tickets to your New York event or your Salt Lake City event or, or wherever you're going. And it's sold out. Well, well, good news. A lot of them aren't sold out now. We have a reason why. But Ryan and I are hitting the road this May 2016. We're going to be in more than a dozen cities. Ryan, what, what city are you most excited about so far? Mm. You know, as much as I don't enjoy going to New York City because I'm just not... Uh, it's overwhelming. In, yeah, I'm just not into the, the hustle and the bustle of New York, I do love their lobster rolls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like we went on a lobster roll tour on the East Coast when we were touring in 2014. Do you remember we were well, Halifax? You, you, you had the Mick lobster roll. <laughs> what a terrible idea that was. Well, you know, I just wanted to make sure that it was a terrible idea, and it turns out, yes, it was. People always ask me, uh, what's the last thing you bought that you regretted? That was one of them for sure. Oh, I yeah. bet it was gross, man. Well, it had this great advertising, like, try this lobster roll, lobster cut right from the sea out our out of our back door, you know, like this local lobster or whatever. And right. uh, it was like mayonnaise and onions and... Yeah, a yeah, pinch of lobster. And a pinch of lobster, yeah. But but no, no, I, I really am looking forward to uh, going to New York City. Just, uh, yeah, lobster rolls. They got awesome food, awesome awesome uh, crowd uh, that shows up. So, yeah, New York City for me. What about you? Uh, for me, I mean, I love all the cities we're going to. Uh, some of the outliers for me, I'm looking forward to going, going back home to Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be there for only a day, but we're going to be at the Neon Theater there, and it's one of my favorite theaters in the world, which is really awesome. But we're going to a bunch of places. So uh, on May 1st, we'll be in New York. That was sold out. We sold out in like 24 hours right away. But wow. Our, our distributor gather, they were able to just get us a, a bigger theater recently. And so there are still some tickets left. I can't promise they'll be left for much longer, but some tickets there. Uh, same with Boston. We have a much bigger theater there now, so that's no longer sold out. Uh, Washington, D.C., we got a second screening there, so we have an encore screening. So the tickets on, on our website, you can you can grab those. Uh, Miami, we have plenty of seats left in Miami and Dallas as well. Uh, Dayton sold out. And then we got a later screening there, so we have an encore screening in, in Dayton as well. That sold out really quickly. Chicago, we've, we've got uh, a big theater there. Seattle is sold out right now, but we are looking for a larger theater, so keep checking back. Uh, San Francisco also sold out. Both screens have sold out in San Francisco already, so bo- both rooms. But get on the waiting list there, and if we find a larger room, larger theater, we will we'll let you know first. And then, of course, we're going to be in Los Angeles. We just got a bigger theater there as well, so that one's no longer sold out. Uh, uh, Salt Lake City, we have two screens there. The first screening is sold out. The second one still has some tickets left. And then we have Missoula and Toronto. Both uh, have plenty of tickets left there, but I'm not sure for how much longer. We we just showed the the documentary. We're recording this on a uh, Friday morning right now, and, and we showed the documentary a second time last night at the Big Sky documentary film festival here in, in Missoula, Montana, and there was a line around the block, and the the amazing reaction from people who uh, 
uh, are seeing the film, and that was just the film festival cut. This this brand new theatrical cut that hits theaters in May. Oh my gosh, I'm so so yeah. excited. To Night share and this day difference. Everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So if um, you'd like to come see me and Ryan, we're going to host a live version of this podcast as well. Uh, you just can go to theminimalists.com slash tour and get your tickets to any of those. And if we didn't mention your city, uh, you don't have to worry because this film is showing in, it's already screened in over 200 theaters. We're going to be in about 400 theaters total uh, on May 24th. So um, that's all across the United States. So we also have details for Canada and Australia coming really soon. Stay tuned this summer for that. You can find your closest theater to you at minimalismfilm.com. Just go there and click on see the film. But guys, here's the deal. This is a special limited release, which means that our documentary, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, will likely show in your city for only one night, one night only. And here's the most important part. It will show only if enough tickets are sold in your city. This means you can't wait till the night of the showing to get your tickets like you would a, a typical movie. I go to movies all the time. I show up and buy the ticket. This doesn't work that way. You have to get your tickets now before, if you want the film to, to play in, in your town. If we don't sell enough tickets, then your local screening won't happen. So we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of screenings, but if they don't, what our, our distributor is calling tip, if they don't tip to, to the number, because if we sell only 10 tickets in and for a particular theater, the theater's like, well, we're not going to show a movie just for, for 10 tickets. We'd rather give this space to someone else. So we really need your help now. We need to front load this uh, as much as possible. So we're really asking for three things from you. We, we very rarely, we don't do any sponsors, any advertisements. We very rarely ask for something, but we are asking for something this time. Today, we need your help. One, get your tickets. Two, invite some friends, family, coworkers, et cetera. And three, share the trailer to our film on social media. And you can find that trailer at minimalismfilm.com and all the details there as well. We're looking forward to seeing you uh, this May, either on the big screen or in person, or hopefully both if you're in one of our tour cities. So all the details can be found at our website and, of course, in the show notes for this episode as well. Before we go into the, the first question, I wanted to give you my thoughts on money. I wrote an essay about this called A Minimalist's Thoughts on Money. I don't think about money the way I used to. I used to think money was more important than just about everything else in my life. So I sacrificed to make money. And then I sacrificed to make more money. And then I sacrificed to make even more money. Working too many hours, forsaking my health, forsaking the people closest to me, forsaking everything important in pursuit of the almighty dollar. The more things I forsook, the more important the money became. Something was missing. I made good money, nay, great money, during the days in the corporate arena. But the problem was I spent even better money. And that was a serious source of dissatisfaction in my life, one that would haunt me for most of my 20s. When I was 19, I worked six or seven days a week, and I earned more than $50,000 a year which, for a degreeless poor kid from Dayton, Ohio, that's a lot of money. More money than my mother ever earned. The problem was that when I was earning 50 grand, I was spending 65 grand. And then when I was earning 65, I was spending 80. Eventually, I'd work my way up the corporate ladder, working 362 days a year, literally, and I was earning a six-figure salary. 
That sounds great, but I was still spending more than I was bringing home. And that equation never balances. So instead of bringing home a great salary, I brought home debt, anxiety, and overwhelming amounts of discontent. My love and hatred of money, love of spending it, hatred of never having enough, was, in fact, my largest source of discontent. Call me stupid. Go ahead. You should. I was stupid. I wasn't stupid just because I was wasting my income, though. I was far more stupid because of the value I gave to money. I told myself I was a number. There was a dollar sign on my head. I could be bought. I told others they could take my time and my freedom in exchange for green pieces of paper with dead slave owners' faces printed on them. That changed when I stopped giving such importance to money. Sure, I need money to pay rent, to put food on the table, to put gas in the car, to pay for health insurance, but I needn't struggle to earn money to buy crap I don't need. Minimalism has allowed me to get rid of life's excess so I can focus on what's essential. And now, in my 30s, I often make less money than my ignorant 19-year-old self, and yet, I'm not in debt, I'm not struggling, and most important, I'm happy. Now, before I spend money, I ask myself one question. Is this worth my freedom? Is this coffee worth $2 of my freedom? Is this t-shirt worth $30 of my freedom? Is this car worth $20,000 of my freedom? In other words, am I going to get more value from the thing I'm about to purchase, or am I going to get more value from my freedom? Don't you think it's a question worth asking yourself? These days, I know every dollar I spend adds immense value to my life. There's a roof over my head at night. The books or the music I purchase bring me joy. The few clothes I own keep me warm. The experiences I share with others at a movie or a concert add value to my life and to their lives. And a cup of tea with my best friend becomes far more significant than a trip to the mall ever would. I no longer waste my money, and thus... It's far less important to pursue it endlessly. That was an essay from our book, Essential, which is an essay collection, and the entire fourth chapter of, of that book is dedicated to finances and money. Let's go ahead and listen to our first voicemail question. This one is from Adrian. Um, I'm currently a college student, but I feel like my current major isn't adding any value to my life, and I've considered um, possibly dropping out and doing another online school similar um, in an area that I'm interested in. Um, I was just curious on your guys' thoughts of, you know, dropping out of school and how I would um, pay back my student debt even though I only have a part-time job. Adrian, thanks for that question. Um, that's a very good question. I mean, first off, you're asking for, you know, permission sort of to, to leave uh, your current situation in college because you want to pursue something more passionate or you want to do something different, um, take an online degree. I mean, certainly uh, that is something that I would support if you are in a major right now and you're like, wow, this is not going to do anything for me after college. Because I think uh, and many of our listeners know this that a degree does not necessarily equal income. I mean, you can ask the 
uh, Starbucks barista with a master's, um, that, that having a college degree does not necessarily equal income. So as far as paying back the debt, I mean, how would you pay back this debt if you did have a degree, right? Um, your, the, the latter part of your question was, how do you pay it back with a part-time job? Uh, you might need to get a full-time job in order to pay for this. But that's how I would approach this, this situation is if this was a car loan or if this was anything else, how would you go about paying back this debt? I can tell you that this debt that you are incurring right now, so if you leave school right now, you're going to have uh, some debt left over. You're not going to have a degree. That's okay. Uh, this is a sunk cost. Right now, up to this point, what you are going into debt is a sunk cost. So I would certainly encourage you to start paying that off as soon as possible. Yeah, ultimately, you need to come up with a plan, and we'll we'll talk a little bit later today about how to derive a plan with some of the other questions that we have. But ultimately, Adrian, don't presuppose that you have to go into debt to to go to college or to go on to your next thing. There are a lot of other alternatives, and we'll try to talk about some of those today. But debt is never a good thing. We'll talk about different types of debt today as well. But you want to be very careful about any new debt that you're taking on and any current debt that you have. You want to have a plan to eliminate that as soon as possible. Our next question is from Anderson in Australia. I'm 26 years old and have been strictly saving up for the past few years for a house deposit. Down the line, I want to be debt-free, but I know that if I get a mortgage, I'm just running towards debt. I have been brought up with the notion that home ownership is the end goal. But if I were to detach myself from the physical aspect of a house that eventually will be mine, definitely until I die, I'm curious to know about the minimalist view on renting versus owning a house. Anderson, congratulations on at least asking these questions before diving right in. Quite often people get house fever like I did when I was 22 years old when I built my first house and and just said, how much money will the bank give me? And that means that's what I can afford. Well, no, that's not necessarily what I can afford. So one of the first questions that I would ask myself about home ownership is, can I afford it? Now, I don't know what the the mortgage structure is like in Australia, but the the conventional mortgage in the United States is a 30-year mortgage. We're one of only two countries where that is the standard for mortgages, so us and Denmark. And and I can tell you that there's no way I would ever take out a a 30-year mortgage. In fact, there are a few other questions I would ask myself. I know you said that home ownership is your goal here. Home ownership is not the goal. You want to figure out what What's behind that home ownership? Why do you want to own a house? What's the real why? What's the real purpose of doing it? I think owning a house is admirable if you can afford it. So ask yourself, can I afford this? And there are some other questions to ask within that. What's my outcome? You said uh, keep a house for the rest of your life. Th- that's wonderful. I would never purchase a house if uh, a few things didn't fall into line for me. One, I wasn't going to be in the area for at least seven years. That ten- Five to seven years tends to be the, the break-even point. I'm a bit more conservative so uh, when it comes to finances. And so I, I like to say seven years. And, and so if I'm going to be somewhere for at least seven years, then, then that's one qualifier. And uh, I would never take out – per- personally, I would prefer to pay for a house with cash if I had it. Personally, I don't have enough cash to, to purchase a house right now. But 
I would be okay with doing a seven-year fixed mortgage with a low interest rate, uh, preferably with like a local bank or a local credit union. And when I look at a seven-year uh, interest rate, it probably somewhere right around 3% right now. And, and, and the reason you would want to do that is you, you want to be able to pay this off as soon as possible. If you can pay it off sooner than seven years, great. But you don't want 15 or 30 years of debt hanging over your head. I know some great financial experts will, will tell you that it's okay to do a 15-year mortgage. Yeah, it is. Relative to a 30-year mortgage, I totally agree with that. But if I were going into a, a home ownership or a home purchasing a mortgage uh, situation right now, I, I would be looking for, am I going to be in this place for seven years? Can I afford a seven-year mortgage? Now, what does afford mean? Well, you never want to spend more than a fourth of, a fourth of your take-home pay. So if you take home... $4,000 a month, that's after tax money, then your mortgage payment should not be more than $1,000 a month. Can that fit into a, a, a seven-year mortgage for you? And of course, I would want to put down at least 20%, ideally closer to 50% of, of the price of the home. Now, what that's going to do, it's probably going to limit your options. I know, especially in the United States, especially the time when, when Ryan and I were buying our opulent houses back in the, the mid-2000s, uh, prices were expensive. And so the average home price has gone down significantly since then, but it's also rise since the, the 2008 crash. So a lot of houses out there are $500,000, $600,000. It's unbelievable the cost uh, of homes. You want to be very careful about what you can actually afford. And I think you need to be honest with yourself. Yeah, I rent right now currently uh, for the same reason you do, Josh. I just can't afford to put down that 20% down payment on a house. The other thing, too, is you know I like the advantages of renting, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I don't have to rely on a piece of property selling. I just went through that within the last couple of years. My condo, I actually bought, uh, it was a year or two years after the market crashed, I think it was like 2009 when I bought my condo. And at the time it was like, oh, my realtor is like, oh man, you're getting this thing for a steal. This is, you know, this is sold for X amount of dollars five years ago. And, you know, this is right uh, after the crash. So, Which was very, very prevalent in, in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, this is going to be a good investment for you. Well, that house ended up selling for like $21,000 less than what I bought it for five years later. So uh, I'm not saying that a, a house... And you right, lost that money. You had to take that hit. Yeah, and I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that uh, buying a house is a bad investment. Uh, but for me, with my experience, uh, what I've gone through, I, I it was the it was the biggest grown up lesson that I've had to go through. Sure, uh, uh, going through selling that house. Uh, so now I rent. I don't have to worry about selling a piece of property. I don't have to worry about depreciation. I don't have to worry about if something goes wrong with one of the appliances or you know keeping up with uh, a yard and things like that. That I don't necessarily have time that I'm willing to dedicate towards that right now. So. Is it okay to own a house? Yeah, sure. It absolutely is. But we've got to do it in a responsible way, and we have to make sure that we're doing it for the right reasons. You just reminded me of something. Uh, Derek Sivers, who runs a really great blog at Sivers.org. Sean, can you throw that in the show notes? Um, he he writes about living simply. And, and one of the – well, he, he owned a huge company called CD Baby. Remember CD Baby back in the 90s? That oh, was yeah. the, the first sort of uh, a big CD retailer online. Mm-hmm. And he just loved what he was doing. He had uh, he has a great quote, though. He, he talks about renting a house is buying the option to leave whenever you want. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I, I said earlier, if you can't 
if you can't envision yourself being in a place for seven years, you may not want to try to buy a house. I would also encourage you to not look at buying your own house as an investment. It may end up being a nice investment, but don't treat it as an investment. If you're buying rental properties because you're completely out of debt and you have extra income to throw around, yes, rental properties can definitely be an investment. But you treat your home as an expense, not an investment. And any money you may actually make off of it in the long run is, is all gravy. It's all windfall. Our next question is from Chris in Oregon. I've recently been considering going back to school. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a musician, uh, self-employed, and I'm considering pursuing education in order to teach at a community college level. Um, the reason why this holds value for me is for retirement. And I, I guess that's kind of the subject that I'd like you guys to encapsulate is uh, where a retirement fund sits within your priority list and um, how going into debt may be a sacrifice in order to acquire some sort of financial stability in the later years of life. Retirement plans. How do we save for retirement? You know, I personally, I put away as much money as I can. My, my attitude used to be, wow, I just got this bonus or I just got this raise or I just had a really good sales month. Wow, here's a few uh, hundred dollars extra or maybe here's a thousand or a couple thousand dollars extra. My thought used to always go towards, wow, what can I upgrade? What, what can I get uh, to replace? One, you know, what, what new shiny item can I get to replace one of these old, not so shiny items? Um, I was buying a new car every couple years. Um, I invested in that condo. Before that, it was uh, going to higher luxury apartments. That's where my mindset was. Every time I made any extra money, it was how can I spend it? Where now, anytime we make extra money, and especially in the world that Josh and I are in right now, there is no, there's no consistency. There's no guarantee of, of, of where or how uh, we are going to uh, pay the bills. So anytime I have any extra money, I put as much of it away as I can. So, I mean, that's, that's my approach is I save literally every single penny that I absolutely can each month. Chris, the thing that I would note is you don't have to have debt. Let's say that back again. You don't have to have debt, especially when it comes to student loans. This country now has $1.4 trillion in student loans, just at $1.4 trillion in in student loans. And and I think it's the highest by far that it's ever been. And it continues to get worse. The average uh, college student leaves with $29,000 in student loans, but that number is going up significantly each year. It's raising higher than any other any other category. And so be very careful about thinking you have to have debt. And, and, and a, a few future questions here on this same same episode, we'll try to talk about more about college. And, and But I want to address about retirement in particular. So Ryan and I wrote out a retirement plan over at theminimalists.com slash retirement. And I wanted to, in that, debunk some sort of retirement myths that Uh, that we often hear. So the first myth that we often hear is, I'm too old to save for retirement. And I can tell you that Ryan and I frequently hired employees who were older than we were, often in in their 40s and their 50s, and they had no retirement savings plan at all. And I was trying to help them set it up. And uh, fear had long ago set in for these people. And they figured out it was, uh, they figured it was just too late for them, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm already in my 40s or 50s. It's too late to save for retirement. And they felt stuck, uh, they, like they had missed their opportunity. And 
I just don't think that's true. While it's true that you're better off uh, starting at age 25 than you are at age 50, it's also true that you're better off starting at age 50 than age 70 or age 90, right? The past is just the past. We can't go back and correct that, but we must stop peering at, at, at the, the rearview mirror and instead look ahead. We need to see what's on the horizon, and we can start now. And, and as long as you're still breathing... It's never too late to start planning for retirement. And guess what? It's never too early either. And that brings me to the second myth. Myth number two is, I'm too young to save for retirement. I've got all this free time. I'm so young. I don't have to save. I'll do that when I'm older and responsible. Too young? Are you insane? If you're younger than 30 years old, which Ryan and I are not anymore, unfortunately, um, But if you are younger than 30 years old, you haven't made. Young people, no matter your tax bracket, you have a significant opportunity to become truly wealthy thanks to the power of this beautiful little thing called compound interest. Do you know that if someone who invests $25,000 by age 25, just $25,000, and gets a good uh, rate of return, like 11 or 12%, about 12%. Uh, uh, so the stock market over the last 25 years has done uh, about 11%. Um, on that, average. On average, yeah. yeah. And that includes the huge dip in the Great Recession, right? Mm-hmm. And so it would have been even greater than that if it weren't for that. But if you were to get a 12% return on $25,000, Uh, you'd have more than $2 million by age 65. If you are able to save $25,000 by age 25 and never put another penny in after age 25, you're going to have more than than $2 million. If that same person waits until age 30, then uh, he or she will need to contribute more than three times as much money. And just that five-year gap means you have to contribute three times as much of your earnings. So starting young is so important. Compound interest is the best way to make your money grow over the long haul. So start now. Start while you're young. And if you want to see a visual illustration of of, of comparing this, you can find that in the retirement essay at theminimalists.com slash retirement. Myth number three is, I don't make enough money to save for retirement. Actually, there's no reason you shouldn't retire a millionaire. That's right. Everyone listening to this, well, virtually everyone listening to this, even minimum wage earners, yes, minimum wage earners, everyone has the opportunity to be a millionaire when they retire. Whenever I say that at like an event or something, Ryan, people think, they look at me like I'm crazy. I was looking at, uh, I was talking to Becca about that, my partner recently, and she was like, everyone, really? And yeah, I know it sounds too good to be true, but the math proves otherwise. A 25-year-old who sets aside only $23 a week or retire with more than a million dollars, $23 a week. Uh, if, you know, of course, that's if you invest the money properly. Um, so maybe you're not 25 anymore. Me either. That's all right. I think us older folks, uh, we, we simply need to adjust accordingly. And uh, there are a lot of tools out there for us to, to retire with. Ryan and I use a, a tool called Betterment. I don't care what you use. Uh, there's another one called Wealthfront, or, or, or you can just sign up with Vanguard or, or a local broker. But it's really about starting today and setting aside some amount of money. The reason I use Betterment is because it's really easy to track and it's beautifully set up, and it allows me to very easily manage my money myself. It's what they call a robo-broker these days. Yeah, going back to your point earlier, I mean, even if someone today who is 35 or 40 years old, 
they start to put $25 away a week. They're right. going to be a much happier, uh, much more uh, secure, secured uh, 60-year-old. Right. They're, they're going to feel that sense of security. Yeah. The, the fourth myth is, well, inflation will hurt my retirement nest, uh, nest egg. So, so inflation is going to hurt my nest egg. And I think this is the only myth that is partially true. However, the truth is irrelevant. It's true that $100 10 years from now will, will probably be uh, possess less buying power than $100 today. So if you have 100 bucks right now, it's going to be worth less, most likely, unless there's deflation. But if you have $100, it's going to be worth less 10 years from now. Uh, but the flip side is also true and, and considerably more important. Your $100 10 years from now will be worth in infinitely more than your friend's $0 investment today. And so you can choose to invest $0 today and have $0 10 years from now. Or if you invest $100 today, well, what you're looking to do is outpace inflation. So inflation is somewhere between 2 to 4% a year, depending on the year. You want your investments to obviously outpace that, making 8 to, to 12% a year by investing in, in index funds, which is what Ryan and I invest in through, through Betterment. So um, the fifth myth that we have is, well, I'd rather spend my money on something else. I hear people say this all the time. Well, you know, I just really want to uh, uh, you know, contribute or give to others, and that's really how I invest. I think that's admirable. And I think when intentions are good, uh, this excuse, it, it of, often sounds like the most compelling reason to avoid saving for the future. I think we sometimes selfishly cling to money, uh, using our income to to purchase like a bunch of like consumer trinkets, basically, right? Uh, but frequently, we also want to use our money to to contribute beyond ourselves, like charities, nonprofits, and uh, to invest in, in people we love. And, and contributing to others is is admirable. And you know, I believe that that giving is living. And so I want to contribute to the world around me, and I want to do so generously. But I found that the best way to help others. Is to help yourself first. The best way to give generously is to have more to give. Investing in yourself first, it helps you flex your, your giving muscle. And there's a reason that airlines tell you to secure your own oxygen mask before helping others. If it's easier to breathe, it's easier to help others in need. The sixth myth is the stock market isn't safe. Translation, you don't understand the stock market. And that's okay. I don't, I don't completely understand the stock market either. Not intimately, anyway. I'm not a, a financial advisor, and nor do I play one on the internet or on a podcast. The only people who must have an advanced understanding of the stock market's intricacies are stockbrokers and day traders and fund managers. And so rather than allocating several hours of my day every single day to, to learn the nuances of mutual funds and index funds and individual stocks, I choose to use an investing service that takes the guesswork out of it. It's true that uh, any investment has risk, right? That's what investments are. Uh, and so you're going to introduce risk into your equation. But long-term investing in the stock market has proven to be the best way to grow your retirement savings. If you look at the last 25 years, including the 2008 crash um, and the recession thereafter, 
the market has averaged a rate of return of nearly 11%. Even when you, when you bring in the Great Depression of 1929, so damn near 100 years ago now, even when you look at the last 100 years with the Great Depression, we're, we're still looking at more than 9% growth over the last 100 years. And so that's much, much better than shoving the money in your mattress or just keeping it in a savings account. Now, some people will look at like last year, Ryan, they, when you and I were actually talking about this yesterday. I, my um, uh, IRA took a huge hit last year, and, and, and so did my index funds. But what does that mean? Like if you have $100,000 invested in the S&P 500 and, and it, it drops by 8% in a year, you're like, oh, my God, holy crap, I just lost $8,000. Well, if we're rational about it, though, what it really means is, wow, the S&P just went on sale by 8%. That's the right. time to buy more. Yeah, because you know it's going to it's going to bounce back to a certain degree. I mean, I I, I think that you know the market uh, it it will go down, it will go up, it goes uh, with these waves, and you got to kind of ride the wave out. That sounds like really cliche, but it's funny because like you were talking me out of it yesterday, where I'm like, dude, we should just I'm just going to like take all my investments out and just put them in a checking account, so at least I can get you know one to two percent return. Uh, it's not even two percent, one percent. Right. In, uh, in fact, in it's, ne- it's going to negative now. So there, there's uh, deflation. Wow. And, and so negative interest rates. Uh, what, what we're seeing now with negative interest rates is, is uh, some some banks are are charging you to to hold your money now. Um, now, whether or not that will last long term, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not a banker, but. Uh, what I can say is that the stock market is the the most ideal place to put your money for long term investments. Right, and and we can also talk about some places not to in, invest as well. So I'll get through these myths, myths, and then we can talk about where you definitely shouldn't put your money. Uh, the the last myth that I have, myth number seven. I don't have enough time or knowledge to manage my retirement savings. Well, it's true. You and I will likely never have as much financial wisdom as, as the experts. You know, I, I'm not going to be Warren Buffett. But that's precisely why we must seek out tools developed by trusted, reputable experts. Uh, I'm usually a, a do-it-yourself kind of guy. Um, I don't DIY my investment strategy, though, and I, th- I think that's important to note. I use, like I said, something called Betterment, and, and it's a tool that has allowed me to control my money without being overly controlling. I, I'm, I don't go in and check it every, every week or every month or anything like that because here's what's going to happen. You'll feel good about the, the increases in the stock market, and you'll feel bad about the dips. And then you'll have these reactionary things that Ryan just talked about, like all of a sudden, like, oh, no, the stock market went down 8% last year. Well, I should pull all my money out. Well, now's the worst time to pull it out when I've lost that money. Now's the best time to buy more when the price is lower. It's With anything, if the price of something goes down and it's an investment, you should ideally want to, to buy more. But when we act on emotion, the opposite tends to be true. We pull all of our money out. Remember that if we're investing for retirement, this is a long-term strategy. I lost a lot of money in 2008, half of my retirement savings, but it all came back by 2014. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. We're in this for the long haul. Now, as you get older, you want to 
start to slowly move your investments into things that are a bit more conservative. And, and the nice thing about Betterment or other online tools or having a broker locally, you can you can have someone who help you manage through that entire process. So I'll also talk to you about... Talk about mutual funds because I know people, people are going to ask about mutual funds. Sure. The, the reason I, I, I don't... And there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, speculation here with mutual funds. Something like ninety four percent of mutual funds underperform the S and P five hundred index. So meaning they still will make some money, but if you were to just invest into the index, you would have made more money. Ninety six percent of the time. Yeah, ninety 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 four percent of the time. Yeah. yeah, and and so. The the thing is, the other six percent of the time, there are some very good good growth mutual funds that will do better than the stock market. Sometimes appreciably better than the stock market. Sometimes appreciably better than the stock market for long periods of time. However, I I haven't found one that I'm completely comfortable with, and I'm more comfortable investing in the S and P five hundred. So yeah. so I'll, I'll kind of walk you through what what I do. And you can go to again the minimalists.com slash retirement. You can see every single one of my retirement dollars and how I have allocated them. I put everything into four different buckets. I have a, a safety net bucket. That's sort of like my emergency fund. If everything goes to hell and 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 I'm broke all of a sudden, I have this the safety net that I've built up over the years. I also have a traditional IRA, that's a retirement account. And then I have a wealth building account. So once I've maxed out my IRA for the year, I I put money into a separate account because you can't continue to contribute to an IRA if you've maxed that out. And then I have a house fund as well because I'm saving up for one day. I may want to to purchase a house uh, given the the rules that I've set up, the the sort of policy I set up when with uh, with Anderson and his previous question. And so I have four different buckets. You can see down to the penny what I have in those accounts because I want to be really transparent with people. Here's how I save my money. And I think it's important to to understand that ever, everyone can start to save. I am certainly uh, not loaded. And I think it's easy if you look at my numbers. I think in the account I have $176,928.89. And, and looking at only at the numbers, I think it's easier for someone to say, wow, that guy is loaded, almost $200,000. Well, not exactly. First, if I were to retire today, $176,000 wouldn't be enough money because ideally you want to have enough saved to live off just the interest uh, and pay taxes and to outpace inflation. And and so if I wanted to bring home, say, $30,000 a year, I need to have about half a million dollars saved if that was earning 12% interest, which would be 2% for inflation, 4% for taxes, and uh, the remaining 6%, 30% is what I would live off of. So ideally, you want to be able to live off of what the money sitting there earns without touching the, the principal. And, and second, of course, I, I'm not loaded. I, I don't view my retirement money as my money. And I think that's the important part. This is a future self's money, right? And I'm investing in my future self. I'm not allowed to touch it, right? I, if, if I touch it, then I'm, I'm breaking my most basic law. I do not touch retirement accounts. The only time I ever would is if I was going through bankruptcy or, or foreclosure. And and so I think it's important to realize that it didn't happen overnight. I didn't have $176,000 just sitting there all of a sudden. It was a lot of $23 uh, uh, additions on top of each other over and over and over uh, to get there. And, and so that will continue to grow as I continue to invest. Now, it may not grow 
this year specifically, or last year it didn't. I lost money in the stock market last year. But again, now is the best time to buy if if I'm actually losing money. If if you're certainly if you're if you're below fifty, but uh, if you're below you know, thirty five and thirty four years old right now, like I want stocks to be less expensive right now, with the intention of them being much more worth a lot more in in the future, right? And and so uh, I can just walk you through those accounts real quick. Um, the safety net. I have about $25,000 in there. That would allow me to live for six months to a year, about a year of, of income. Uh, generally recommend that. My retirement savings account, you may have a 401k or 403b at work. That's great. Um, I have a, a traditional IRA. You could also consider a Roth IRA, and I make the distinctions there in the retirement essay. Uh, the build wealth account, that's just an addition to my retirement. Any extra money that I have I, that I want to throw in, I throw it into my build wealth fund, and then I'm saving for a house, so I saved uh, some additional money in a house fund. It's a bit more conservative because it's not as long-term of an investment. And I would like to encourage you to not invest in a few different things. Uh, first off, uh, cash value life insurance. So if you're going to get life insurance, which I definitely recommend life insurance, if you have a comp- if you have a, a, a family that you want to take care of, if you die, if people depend on you, you need term life insurance, uh, 15 or 20 year policy, about 10 times whatever your income would be. And, and, but don't settle for cash value life insurance. You want term life insurance. And I have a, a link to the article, the truth about life insurance, there at the minimalists.com slash retirement. You also, I would encourage you not to invest in individual stocks unless you are an expert day trader or uh, uh, some sort of financial genius, truly a financial genius. I would encourage, I would discourage you from purchasing individual so- stocks. I think they're one step up from buying lottery tickets, basically. Yeah. I had to learn this the hard way. Yeah? <laughs> well, yeah, I invested in, well, I was like looking at Tesla and I'm looking at SpaceX and I'm like, wow, man, these companies are really, you know, kind of taking off. I'm just going to dabble a little bit. And I did. I, I took like a thousand bucks and I bought some, you know, very, very small shares. But like I've I've lost uh, like 20, 30 percent on mm-hmm. that so far because of how bad the market's been doing. Will those come back? Maybe. Um, but that 20, 30% hurts a lot more than that seven or 8% in my retirement fund. Sure. In, in, in the S and P 500, it's an aggregate of the 500 sort of best companies in the stock market is is the way to look at it. And so you're not betting on any one individual horse. It's an amalgam of all of these, these companies and they tend to stay fairly similar. Sometimes they'll exchange companies for other ones, but the S&P 500 is far safer than individual s- stocks. And I want my money to grow over time. And I prefer the get rich slowly over get rich quick method. <laughs> and, and, and because I think the, 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 the latter is, is just yeah, the get rich quick is usually is, is a bad outcome. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, I mean, it's gimmicky. Yeah. 99.999% of the time, and I'm only throwing in that 0.0001% for rounding error. I yeah, mean, right. There's there's luck. And yeah. so like, that's like like what I said. It's it's like buying a, a lottery ticket. Some people do win the lottery. Yeah. You're not going to win the lottery, though. Uh, the other thing I would recommend not investing in uh, precious metals like gold and, and silver, et cetera. Like individual stocks, the, these metals are just fraught with risk, uh, especially when compared to index funds. And even worse, gold and silver, they are commodities. And commodity prices are often manipulated by speculation, 
rather than supply and demand. So just because supply and demand of gold doesn't necessarily change appreciably, but speculation radically changes the value of, of gold. And especially since we haven't been on the gold standard for a very long time, I would discourage you uh, from from investing in precious metals. Put your money into the stock market instead. Um, annuities, uh, variable annuities, or any annuity, really, for that matter, uh, annuities are generally not good investments, uh, especially since there are many other investment opportunities out there. Uh, more often than not, annuities have just a ton of fees. They're rife with fees and, and penalties and surrender periods and uh, not to mention l- really low rates of return. They're just a bad investment, annuities are. And they're, they're usually the way that sleazy brokers rip off older people is trying to get them into an annuity. And, and last, anything that's sort of a low-interest yielding investment, uh, CDs, um, too many bonds, things like that, I would avoid that unless you're trying to be very conservative for a reason. You're close to retirement and and you want something that's going to provide you with a few percentage points to maybe help out with inflation. But unless you're really close to retirement, I I would stay away from from uh, low interest yielding accounts. I wouldn't just put all your money in just a checking account uh, and I wouldn't put it all under the mattress either. Our next question is from Deborah in Missouri. I just had a question about money. I know you're um, doing a podcast on money coming up soon. Um, I owe about $14,000 in student debt, and it's really weighing on me, and I want to get it paid off. It's been 10 years, and I still owe it, Um, just going through financial difficulties. But um, I have about a $5,000 thing for my work, a 4013B or whatever from work, and I was wondering if you thought it would be a good idea to just cash that out and pay down some of that $14,000. I know it's only 5000 towards it. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I'm not sure what to do. First off, I want to say you are already really far ahead, far, further ahead than a lot of other people who come out of school with that $35,000, $39,000 worth of debt. That's about uh, where I was at. Um, I actually did uh, take out my 401k and cash that out to pay off about half of my student loan debt. It was the worst thing I've ever done. Ouch. Yeah, I, I did it because, well, the market was down. Um, I was feeling the pressure of like the payments getting ready to come on. And I thought I could just take a, care of a huge chunk of this right now if I just eat eat these penalties and, 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 uh, and drain my 401k. And ultimately, like the $5,000 you have in that 401k, by the time you get it out, pay taxes on it, pay the penalties, I mean, you're looking at maybe $2,000. Yeah, 2500 if you're lucky. Yeah. So, I mean, Josh said it earlier. I mean, unless you're going through foreclosure or like a bankruptcy, do not take that money out of, of, your, of your 401k or uh, whatever, whatever account you have with your work. But there are things you can do, like, uh, you know, instead of just paying the monthly payments on your student loans, pay an extra hundred bucks or an extra 200 bucks. I know, uh, Mariah, she, uh, after our car accident in 2014, she had to get a new car, took out a loan. It was like, uh, nine or 10,000 bucks. Um, she's been paying an extra car payment here or there when she can afford it, or she'll pay an extra 100, $200 when she can afford it. It was a five-year loan. She will have this thing paid off, um, in less than three years. 
just by adding a little bit here and there. So that, that is what I would recommend is instead of looking at how can I, how can I get a, rid of a big chunk of this debt, I think the question you should be asking is how can I put a little bit more money towards this debt each month? That might mean uh, you know, taking away, uh, depriving yourself of something f- temporarily um, so you can afford to pay a little bit extra. It might mean uh, maybe taking up some extra hours at work or maybe taking a, uh, another f- uh, part-time job or something like that temporarily uh, to cover this debt. But certainly there are ways that you can tackle this $14,000 of debt uh, without draining your 401k. I had a bunch of debt throughout my 20s. I had car debt, credit card debt out the wazoo, which those interest rates are unbelievable. I even had student loan debt. Now, I don't have a college degree, but somehow I have student loan debt or had student loan debt. Um, I'm completely debt-free now. And and I can tell you there was a period when I was especially trying to pay off the credit cards because those were the most dangerous with the highest interest rates. I remember when I was delivering pizzas for a year for Papa John's <laughs> and, and and just doing that on top of my full-time job uh, in the evenings and weekends. And I wish Uber would have been around then because I know that's another great solution. I've talked to a lot of different Uber drivers who go through that three or four or five days uh, a week, and they get to make their own hours, and I, I think that's awesome. So, yeah, you may need to do something temporarily to increase your income and and really get out of debt. And the key is once you get out of debt, do whatever you can to stay out of debt. And no, uh, Deborah, please, please do not cash out your retirement fund no matter what. Uh, unless, of course, you have some sort of bankruptcy coming up. Yeah, that's a really good question, Deborah. I think it goes in line with Adrian's, too, about uh, his question earlier about uh, dropping out of school and how he's going to get rid of that debt. Heather has a question from Lexington, Kentucky. I wondered if you could give um, some younger folks an, an idea of what it would look like to pursue an education, a secondary education, uh, without going into debt. I was fortunate um, to get into a little bit of debt early on and then started paying as I, as I went um, after I paid off my debt. And then I got an employer and worked a deal. Um, so instead of a raise, they would continue to pay um, certain classes for me. And I, little by little, went to school over a decade and have a master's degree um, and, and debt-free as a result. So I think that's something that we as a society should um, embrace. You don't have to go that textbook four years and be done. Um, you can take it slow and still be a successful person. I have at least three tips here for folks who are considering education and and wanting to avoid debt, which you certainly should. My first tip would be stop being irresponsible. And really what I mean by that is stop being ignorant and entitled. We're in a culture now where we think we have to go to the most prestigious school to get our ballet degree or whatever it may be, and and that may not be necessary for for anyone and and so when when we go to you know major in in dog walking and try to get a master's degree in that and end up a hundred thousand dollars in debt well the truth is did you need to go down that path in the first place and and so that's the entitled piece of it is i have to have this degree because this piece of paper means something to me well, it may not mean something for your financial future. Now, there are certain exceptions to that, obviously. 
a surgeon, a, a dentist, an attorney. It, different people have to go through that process. Even you know, a high school teacher, my, my former spouse is an eighth grade teacher, and she, she walked away from a relatively good college with about $80,000 worth of student loans. And I know how much money she made. She made a teacher's salary, an eighth grade teacher's salary in Ohio. And, and that is really hard to pay off $80,000 worth of debt on a, a teacher's salary. Now, you say, well, I have to have a degree to be a teacher. Well, do you really? What's, what's your outcome? I'm a teacher. I teach a writing class online. And I've taught hundreds, if not thousands at this point, of students how to write better. I've never even taken a writing class in my life. Uh, The truth is that if you can find ways to add value to other people's lives, that's what a good teacher does. Degree or not, you have the opportunity to add value to other people's lives. So if you can get to the underlying side of what you want to do, you may find that the traditional career path isn't necessarily the career path that, that you have to go in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Now, when I say don't be ignorant, that means there are other options out there. There's, there are much cheaper options out there. You can go to a community college for your first couple of years. That is appreciably cheaper than, than your traditional uh, private or even public school. You can also find a, a go to an in-state college. In-state tuition is generally far more, uh, far cheaper than than going somewhere out of state. And even if you want to get away from the parents or, or wherever, I understand that. Go to the other side of the state, but you can still go to an in-state school. Or many states have these share programs. So uh, Becca, my, my partner, she lived in, in Minnesota, but she went to college in Wisconsin because they had you know, this sort of share uh, in-state tuition thing. And, and also, while you're going through college, you can do like many people do and work a, a full-time job while you're going through college and bankroll your own college. There is no need for you to go into debt to get yourself through college. There are plenty of examples out there. You can find thousands of people, and all you have to do is talk to a few of them who have made it through college. Is it easy? Hell no, it's not easy. But college itself isn't easy. You know what's even harder, though? Walking out with six figures worth of debt and, and figuring out how to pay it off when you can barely afford to, to pay your mortgage because you're, you're, you're leaving this, this four-year or five-year or eight-year degree and you're entering an entry-level job that doesn't pay very well. Yeah, I think Heather gives some really good advice too about how she found an employer and worked at a deal where they would pay for some of her tuition. Yes. I know a lot of companies do this. I know like a lot of fast food companies uh, that do this, that they will pay for a certain percentage of your tuition. You can also uh, apply for grants I had no idea until I left college um, the amount of grants that were available. And fairly, I don't want to say fairly easy to get uh, because you have to write a proposal. you got to write, you know, papers and and reasons as to why you should get these grants. But the money is out there. And like Josh said, yeah, it's it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. Um, But do you want to put that work in now? to get rid of uh, the, the, those loans or to not have loans? Or do you want to put the work into it when you leave school with 60, 70, 80, you know, six figures worth of, of debt, which is, God, that's just staggering, man. Yeah, and the other, the other option to consider here is a trade school. If you're wanting to do something meaningful with your life, many of the most meaningful and most rewarding professions are a result of, uh, of having a, a useful trade. And by the way, if you have a very useful skill, you are essentially recession-proof. 
We can be in a recession and people still need plumbers. Mm -hmm. People still need the basics. And so by having those skills, teaching yourself a skill, that's much better than than your dog walking degree will ever be. Yeah. There's one other thing, too, I want to bring up is uh, untraditional type of schooling. Uh, I did this when I was in the corporate world, when I was working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a week. I was still going to school and earning my degree. I was going one night a week. The class was about four hours long. Each class lasted anywhere from four to six weeks. Um, but I was able to within, uh, it was four and a half years is what it, but I took a semester off. So it was really four years. Uh, it took me four years to get my degree still um, going in an untraditional way, working full time. It was hard as hell. There were times when I wanted to quit, um, but Ultimately, it is something that was totally doable. Our next question is from Jeff in Albany, New York. In my minimalism lifestyle, I try my hardest to only accumulate the things I really need and to purge out the rest. But one additional constraint I put on myself is to only purchase things that are high quality and that are manufactured in the USA, if not New York State. By being a minimalist, I believe that I save enough money to justify the higher cost of American-made clothing and other things. If more people would behave like minimalists with a made-in-USA focus to their purchases, I think we could help further our local economies and make our country a better place. What are your thoughts? Well, if we all stopped consuming, the market would crash. Our economy would crash. Uh, And then, as we saw in 2008, when we overstimulate the economy, when we spend too much, the economy crashes. So there is certainly a balance between the two. You talk about buying uh, high-quality goods uh, made in America. Those are certainly ways to help continue to stimulate the economy and and spend money responsibly. And your comment reminds me of an essay. I'm going to read a quick excerpt. It's called Stimulate the Economy Like a Minimalist. This is from our book, Essential. So Jeff will send you a copy of, of Essential as well. If everyone immediately stopped spending their money, our economy would crash. It goes without saying. Consequently, one of the biggest supposed arguments many people have against minimalism is that if everyone became a minimalist, then we'd all be doomed. The financial system as it stands today would collapse, and no longer would we have the wealth necessary to purchase cheap plastic shit from Walmart. There are several problems with this point of view. Some obvious some a bit more abstruse. First, no informed person would argue that we should stop spending money or that we must stop consuming. Consumption is not the problem. Consumerism is the problem. Consumerism is compulsory, vapid, pernicious, impulsive, unfocused, misguided, and worst of all, it is seductive. Consumerism's shiny facade promises more than it can possibly deliver. Because love, happiness, contentment, and satisfaction are all internal feelings that cannot be commodified. And the truth is that once our basic needs are met, the acquisition of trinkets does little for our lifelong well-being. Using consumerism to stimulate the economy is like fixing a cracked mirror with a hammer. It only worsens the problem. Yes, Trade is an important part of our society. Circumventing consumerism, however, doesn't imply that minimalist sidestep commerce. Rather, minimalism 
is predicated on intentionality, which means we spend our money more deliberately. Minimalists invest in experiences over possessions, travel, indie concerts, vacations, community theater, etc. We can all spend money without acquiring new material things. Minimalists buy new possessions carefully. To do so, we must ask better questions like, will this thing add value to my life? Minimalists support local businesses. Local indie shops tend to be less motivated by profit. Sure, they need to make money to keep the lights on, and there's nothing wrong with that, but earning a buck usually isn't the primary concern of the local bookstore, restaurant, or bike shop. They are in business because they are passionate about their product or service, and they want to share that passion with their patrons. Passion begets greater quality and better service, which makes the money they earn well-deserved. Ultimately, minimalists aren't interested in, quote, stimulating the economy. Stimulation is ephemeral. We'd rather improve our economy's long-term health by making better individual decisions about consumption, getting involved in our community, and supporting local businesses who care. If more people do this, we'll build a stronger economy, one that's predicated on personal responsibility and community interaction, not a false sense of urgency and the mindless stockpiling of junk we never needed in the first place. Uh, just one quick note on the uh, the local uh, aspect of it. As I mentioned and Ryan and I mentioned in this essay here, yeah, local is important, but it's not binary. It's not all or nothing. I had some guacamole yesterday. I live in Missoula, Montana, and it is winter, and I would be hard-pressed to find local avocados. And so it's more about the intention. Can I find something locally, and is it just as good or better locally? If so, I'm going to, I'm going to seek that out first before going to the, the sort of outside my, my, my geographic area. Jessica from Fargo has a question. I was kind of wondering, I know that both of you have a little bit of a back, background in a corporate business structure and that you both come from a little bit more well-to-do um, careers in the past. I was wondering if you guys have any advice from people for people coming from a little bit more poverty or substandard careers. You know, people assume that, you know, since we had these big corporate jobs, I was going to say big corporate cushy jobs, but it wasn't very cushy. Uh, it was from ostensibly cushy, though, sure. from the outside, right? Yeah, yeah. That we kind of grew up in these privileged households. Right. And that is not the case. Like, we we grew up dirt poor. Like, I, my my uh, mother was on food stamps um, ever since I can remember, uh, at least, like, the second or third grade. Um I did not come from a place of privilege. <laughs> I, the only reason I went to college is because work paid for it. I didn't start going to college until I was 25 years old. So, you know, advice for, for uh, you know, people who are, who are poor, uh, you know, if I could give my poor self some advice when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, graduating high school, I, I would really, really encourage myself to make better decisions. Because I can think, you know, for those first three years after high school, I was working for my dad, I was making 11 bucks an hour. And I mean, that's 22,000 bucks a year. That, that's, that's, that's not a lot of money. Um, 
it was because I was making very bad decisions. I, I didn't uh, spend my money well, and I didn't really seek any other type of uh, cultivating a passion or even another type of work, another job, until you know the, the corporate job came around, and that's when you know the dollar signs lit up in my eyes. But even then, I would still encourage myself, even before I took that job, is am I making this decision intentionally? It's, it's funny, growing up, money was always this point of, of discontent. And I always thought, well, having more money is going to make me happier. But ultimately, when I look back, it wasn't the money that was causing the discontent. It was the repeated poor decisions uh, that we were making growing up. That's, that's what really caused the discontent. Totally agree. And, and that reminds me of another essay that we wrote. It's called Money Doesn't Buy Happiness, But Neither Does Poverty. And I think it's important to look at both sides of the, the, the spectrum here. People have strange conceptions about money. When we don't have it, we often believe that money will make us happier. When we do have money, however, we tend to want more. The odd thing is that we all know, at least intellectually, that money won't buy happiness. But unfortunately... We've been steeped in a culture so heavily mediated that we've started believing the lies, the cars, the houses, the stuff, living the so-called American dream will make us happy. But of course, this is not true. The opposite, however, is also not true. A life of poverty, a life of perpetual deprivation isn't joyous either. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with money just as there's nothing inherently wrong with material possessions or working a nine-to-five. We all need some stuff, and we all have to pay the bills, right? It's just that when we put money and possessions first, we lose sight of our real priorities. We lose sight of life's purpose. And so maybe getting some of the excess stuff out of the way, clearing the clutter from our lives, can help us all save money and make room for the most important things in life. Money helps accentuate these areas, sure, but the size of your wallet is much less important once your priorities are in line with your beliefs. Jessica, what I would ultimately say is I grew up poor. I was discontented. I became wealthy in my 20s. I was also discontented. In order to change that, I had to change the way that I looked at money and no longer treat money as a driver of happiness. Money is great if you use it responsibly. Money is terrible if you use it irresponsibly. So be very, very careful with how you allocate every dollar that you bring into your life and every dollar that you let go of. Our next question is from Caitlin in Baltimore. When you need money for experiences, and I'm thinking particularly about travel because that adds a lot of meaning and it's an experience and not a thing, how do you balance that with a point in your life where you may be left a high-paying job to pursue a passion that just isn't yielding a lot of money, and you might just be making ends meet or making a basic living. So then that kind of gets in the way of possibly doing travel to all of the national parks in the United States, for example. So I'm just having a hard time balancing those two things. I definitely don't prioritize items or having a lot of stuff. And so I don't spend my money there, but I definitely want money for myself and then my children later on to have those experiences. Caitlin, my short answer is you have to find a way to make it happen for you. 
And I'm going to recommend some resources for you because, uh, first off, you are assuming that it costs a lot of money to travel all over the world, and it certainly can. You know, Ryan and I have gone on crazy 100-city book tour, and that costs more money than I, I would like, but we were able to be relatively frugal throughout most of it. I, often we slept on floors and at Airbnbs and uh, even a few rest stops in the middle of nowhere. And while we didn't do that all the time, we also stayed at some hotels using different apps and, and so forth. There are certainly ways for you to travel. Now, so the question is, do you want to travel full time? That, that's not my passion. That's certainly why I wouldn't do it. If I had to travel full time, that'd be miserable. But a really good friend of ours and a business partner that we run a publishing company with called Asymmetrical Press, we're actually here at the offices now of, of Asymmetrical Press here in Missoula, Montana, and uh, his name's Colin Wright. And he is a full-time traveler. So he's an entrepreneur, and he is literally a full-time traveler. He travels to a new country every four months, and he doesn't even get to pick what the country is. His readers on his blog, uh, exilelifestyle.com, they pick where he's going to go. So he's been all over the world, damn near every continent, I think. Um, I was going to say everywhere but Antarctica, but he lives in Iceland, so that's similar. He was in Iceland in the winter, so it's probably similar to Antarctica. Um, uh, no, he, he travels full-time, and then he, he writes about his journey, and he also writes about how it doesn't cost very much. We also have a, a friend uh, named Nomadic Matt, and he wrote a, a really great book, on a how-to book. It's called How to Travel the World on $50 a Day, Travel Cheaper, Longer, and Smarter is the subtitle of it. And so he has a lot of different travel tips and I guess they call them travel hacks these days. Uh, but basically just, just ways for you to travel uh, a lot more efficiently. And if you really want this to happen, you will be able to find a way to do it, whether it's making money freelancing as an entrepreneur somehow or taking on different client work or building a skill that allows you to do that. Now, if you just want to travel part-time, that's a totally different story. That's saving up for you know extravagant, extravagant vacations, things like that. That's a different story. And you have to decide which route you want to take. And keep in mind, it's not permanent. You may decide to travel the world for a year or two. Ryan and I have had a lot of friends who have done this, and then they settle into something else, something different for them. Your life is going to change from your 20s to your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. And you can do these things whenever you want. I would encourage you to do it now while you're younger, while you have the opportunity to do it, and while you are burdened by fewer responsibilities and burdened less by the outside world. Our next question is from Marilyn in the Bronx. I am 25 years old and I have approximately $85,000 in student loan debt, which I'm currently trying to pay off. Now, once I uh, eliminate this debt, obviously, I never want to return to owing money. Having this much uh, amount of debt has made me look at everything in life from an economic perspective, particularly on not having children and not owning a home because all I see is dollar signs. Now, what advice would you give to a young person such as myself who is in, you know, has a lot of debt, and but they may feel anxiety about, you know, pursuing life's pleasures, you know, without having to look at the bottom line. I think really the mindset you have right now, I mean, that is where your mind should be. Having $85,000 worth of debt, 
uh, I would be looking at the bottom line of every single thing too until that debt was paid off. Now, I do understand that sometimes I have to deprive myself of, of some of life's pleasures if I am trying to get out of a hole. Uh, I was literally eating you know, peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodles when I was living in my 2,000 square foot condo. Not to say that that's the only thing that I ate, uh, but I ate a lot of it. I certainly did budget to go out every once in a while. Um, I took a vacation, budgeted for that. So that that would be my recommendation is if you are finding yourself being too deprived, then start to add uh, some of life's pleasures in there and budget for those uh, budget for those cases. I would say too, there are a lot of life's pleasures you can get for free, whether it's watching a sunset with a friend or uh, walking on the beach or walking through uh, uh, Central Park there in, in, in New York City. There are a lot of life's pleasures um, that we can get for free. But yeah, certainly... If you're in $85,000 worth of debt, there's going to have to be a little bit of temporary deprivation implemented. But you know, I, I would, I would uh, caution too, pursuing life's pleasures, it can be dangerous. I mean, when we're living just for the pleasure, that's what I was doing in the corporate world. Um, I was making very rash, very impulsive decisions. I was uh, spending more money than I was making. Trying to live in the manic, essentially. Sure, I mean, it's what children do. You know, yeah. uh, Becca has a, a two-year-old daughter, and and that's what toddlers do. They, they're basically constantly pursuing pleasure. That that next bit of stimuli, me, 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 me. It's a solipsistic view of the world. And so, Marilyn, what I would say is, don't pursue life's pleasures. Pursue a life. Of meaning, and the way to do that is to identify your values. Now, Ryan and I wrote about our values in a book called "Minimalism: Live a Meaningful Life: Health, Relationships, Passion, Growth, Contribution." And Marilyn, I'd love to send you a copy of that book. And that book, maybe it'll help you identify what your values are. But once you've identified your values, I would encourage you to find pleasure in meaning, not meaning in ephemeral pleasures. All right. Well, we'd love to hear what what you all have to say. So if uh, you have a comment about money or finances or debt or anything like that, uh, including minimalism tips for how you personally handle your money, then feel free to leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839. We'll air our favorite comments and tips on the next episode. And if your voicemail is selected, we will send you an autographed copy of one of our books, either Essential or Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, or my personal favorite, Everything That Remains, which actually has a, a, a chapter about me finally becoming debt-free at age 31 after spending my entire life in, in some sort of debt. So that, that my, my own journey of becoming debt-free is in Everything That Remains. All right, let's move on to our iTunes comment of the week. This one comes from Natasha Coy. It's titled, My Favorite Podcast. She writes, it makes my day every time I see a new minimalist's podcast to listen to. I love learning about applying minimalism to all aspects of life. Josh and Ryan explain very well both the why and the how behind this lifestyle change. Informative and entertaining, I find value in every episode. As a stay-at-home mom of three with very little free time, 
It's great to be able to listen while going about my daily life and still absorb all of the great information they have to share. The love and passion they have for minimalism and life in general is very evident and inspiring. I can't wait to see what the future holds for the minimalists. Keep up the amazing work, guys. Awesome. I am blushing right now. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome comment. Thank you so much. We're going to send you a copy of Everything That Remains. And thank you to everyone else who has uh, left us a review on iTunes. Your positive, honest reviews help our Simple Living message reach more ears, so please keep them coming. We'll keep reading our uh, favorite iTunes comments on the podcast, so feel free to get extra creative. Tell us about how uh, our podcast saved your dog's life or (laughs) how all of a sudden you have uh, started experiencing... Less foot pain, whatever, whatever this podcast has helped with. I'd love to see <laughs> if that. If it's in cured the your cancer, just let us know. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know if it will do that, but but maybe the foot pain. Um, all right, cool, cool. All right, you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time for the <laughs> lightning round. This is the hashtag Ask the Minimalist Lightning Round, where we answer questions from social media. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. You can ask those questions there, at The Minimalists, and we're on Facebook.com slash The Minimalists. All right. Our first question is from Moses. Moses asks, in Uganda, where people dream big but live on less than a dollar a day, how can the poor be convinced that minimalism is a better Lifestyle. Well, let's look at this for a minute. So what is minimalism? Minimalism is a old philosophy, but a new reaction is a reaction to this post-industrial, unprecedented consumerist culture. Now, Uganda does not necessarily have the same consumerist culture. So let's take the word minimalism out of this altogether, Ryan and Moses. And let's just talk about, well, what is minimalism? When you get down to its core, minimalism is about living with intention. Another word that I would use is intentionality, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to be more intentional whether we are poor, Ryan and I grew up poor, certainly not Uganda dollar a day poor, but on welfare, food stamp kind of poor, drugs and alcohol in the house kind of poor, very little intention kind of poor in our scenario. Mm-hmm. Or if you're wealthy, like Ryan and I were in our 20s, making six figures, also not a whole lot of intention there. And so would either our poor selves or our former wealthy selves have benefited from more intentionality? You bet we would. And in fact, one could make the argument that if you have fewer resources, whether that's fewer dollars or, or, or less time, less attention, then being more intentional with those resources is even more important with the fewer that you have. Sarah writes, how can I make money last on a part-time job? Well, we've kind of talked about some money-saving tips, temporary deprivation. I am going to read an essay that I think will help people to come up with their own uh, ways to kind of cut cut their, their budget. This essay is called Need, Want, Like. And uh, it comes from our book, Essential, in the uh, chapter that deals with finances. So I'm just going to read a little excerpt from this essay. You can break free of the shackles of unnecessary obligation and its laundry list of side effects, stress, debt, discontent, anxiety, depression. 
the two of us took back control of our lives with a simple three-category list. You can do likewise. First, write down all your expenses. Every last dollar you spend, mortgage, car payment, rent, credit card statements, meals, gasoline, electricity, student loans, bottled water, trips to Starbucks, retirement, healthcare, savings, etc. Write it all down. All of it. Now separate those expenses into three categories. Category one, needs. What do you really, truly need to live? Everyone is different, but most of us have the same basic needs. What do you need? Food? Shelter? Super Nintendo? Category two, wants. This category is important. Many of the things you want can lead to happiness. The problem is we indulge too many of our wants. New vehicles, designer clothes, impulse buys, many of which end up being likes instead of wants. Another way to look at this category is to ask yourself, What adds value to my life? Category three, likes. This category is for when you say things like, yeah, I like my satellite radio, but I don't get a ton of value from it. Or I like that dress. It's so my style, but I don't really need any new clothes. Many of the things we just sort of like suck up a ton of our income. And it's hard to notice during our consumer-driven frenzies. These likes are often impulse purchases that feel great in the moment, but the post-purchase methamphetaminic high wears off by the time the credit card statements enter our mailbox. It's an odd double bind. Turns out you don't really like many of your likes at all. You've made your list, you've got your three categories, and now it's time to take action. We'll start from the bottom and work our way up. That is what we did before we were ready to make any big life changes. So month one, get rid of 100% of your likes. All of them, gone. Month two, get rid of 100% of your wants. Yes, all of them at first. Once you're headed down the right path and you've made the necessary changes in your life, you can reintroduce your wants one at a time though you'll likely realize you want far fewer of your old wants, your pacifiers, once you're traversing a more meaningful path. Remember, your wants are important. They add value to your life, but they're not more important than changing your life. Month three, reduce your needs by at least 50%. More if you can. You might be thinking, but I need a roof over my head. I need to eat. I need my MTV. Okay, you needn't get rid of everything. You needn't live in a hut and eat only ramen noodles. But you can significantly reduce your cost of living. Can you sell your home like both of us did? Can you cut your rent by 50%? Can you sell your car and get a cheaper one? Can you find ways to reduce your food costs by 50%? Of course you can. While there isn't a cookie-cutter answer for anyone, you can reduce your expenses and live more deliberately. This is the high price of pursuing your dreams. Unfortunately, many people aren't willing to pay the price, and so their dreams never become musts for them. They remain shoulds, which eventually turn into wishes, which one day become never going to happens. And that story always has a sad 
ending. And I just want to say, after reading this, this is a hard exercise to go through. Yeah. I mean, we, we say things like, oh, just, well, just cut out 50% of your needs. I mean, that sounds really crazy. But if you put in the work, if, right. if you really spend the time uh, to, to in the action, the time and the action, right? Sure. I mean, when I was going through through this exercise myself of moving into a smaller apartment, it was one that I actually ended up liking a lot more. But in time, I felt like, what am I doing? I'm losing my status, my sense of self, my sense of self-worth, because I'm moving from this really nice condo to this tiny little apartment. And what I realized is, no, I was taking back control uh, of my life. So how, how do you save money on a part-time job? Well, you may, you may need to get a full-time job for, for a period of time or, or a part-time job that pays better or, or do something that does bring more money in. But you are in control of the money you are spending. So if you take those three steps that Ryan just talked about, you go through your needs, you go through your wants, you go through your likes, you be honest with yourself, and then you form a, a budget. So uh, I'm going to recommend an app for you. It's called Every Dollar. So if you don't have a smartphone, you can still do it online. It's everydollar.com. And it's literally tracking every dollar that you make and every dollar that you spend. And if you do that, you're, you're going to find a way to, to really maximize every dollar uh, that you have. And Sarah, if you have debt, the, the book I'm going to recommend to you is a book called The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. It's a book that Ryan and I have both used. In fact, I've taken this book, I've bought it by the case in the past, and we have copies at the office sometimes. I think I've given away my last copy here. Yeah, I've given away uh, to mentoring clients before. Yeah, we, we give it to a lot of different people, so I'll often buy that book by the case. If you have debt, his baby steps process is the best way to, to really get out of debt. But it's about putting a budget together. It's about sticking to what you say you're, you are, are going to stick to. Ruth asks, how big of a nest egg rainy day fund should a person have at all times? Well, I like the Dave Ramsey approach. Uh, he starts off, uh, he, he, ta- he talks about starting off with like a baby nest egg. So you save for the majority of emergencies that come up. So $500 to $1,000. This is a great, great little start. Uh, this will cover if a hot water heater goes out, a uh, flat tire, most, most emergencies. I mean, yeah, a thousand bucks isn't going to cover a new transmission. Um, that doesn't happen all the time though. Uh, but yeah, the, the vast majority of emergencies, the 500 to a thousand dollars should help, uh, help cover those. And then really ultimately, um, I have six months saved up of, of, of my expenses. Yeah, I'm a bit more conservative, so I have about a year, but but I, I agree with that. Having six months to a year, but you don't want to do that until you have paid off your debts. And I think it's really important. Have the emergency fund first. I, I call it a safety net of five hundred to a thousand bucks. Dave Ramsey recommends a thousand. I know that's overwhelming for some people. So if you can just get to five hundred first, it's a great benchmark to start with, and then start paying off all of your debt. But then, yes, you want to have an emergency fund. So if something happens where you lose your job or all of a sudden you're making less money, you're not panicked and you're not going to get into this downward spiral of credit cards and debt. You're going to have some money to live off of for a while. So you can find out about my own safety net down to the dollar at theminimalists.com slash retirement. So I just want to say if you are someone out there who has at least $500 in 
a savings account, you are ahead of 41% of Americans. I just read a stat uh, that shows 59% of Americans have at least $500. Uh, That means there are 40% of people out there who are not planning ahead. So if you are part of that 60%, congratulations, keep saving. And I'll tell you this, with uh, my safety net, I keep it in a separate uh, account. I actually put it in Betterment, but you could do a totally separate bank or whatever. Make it hard to access is my point. That's the reason I put it in Betterment. I have access to it if I really need that emergency fund, but it's not in my checking account or my savings account that's attached to my, my bank card or something. It's harder for me to get to. And so I can't rationalize, oh, I'll just pay myself back one day because one day never happens. And, and so having that safety, that's important, but setting it somewhere else so that you don't have easy access to it, you want access to it, but not easy access is also just as important. Tim writes in, are there things you didn't realize you wasted money on until you minimized? Uh, not not for me. I was very aware of where all of my money... You aware you were wasting your money? Yeah, I was aware that I was wasting my money, whether it was you know, drugs, alcohol, or a new fancy gadget, or uh, whatever it was. I was opening up the floodgates for spending. Whatever, whatever I wanted, I went out and got. And uh, it's funny, every time I would go purchase something, I mean, just like we write about how that high doesn't last... Uh, far past the checkout line. Right. I knew. I knew that the dip was coming. Oh. And and when that dip was coming, I was just like planning to buy something else different. Oh well, I'll go to the bar later tonight or something, and, and rack up a big bar tab or you know whatever. But Always I was looking very cl- over the the shoulder of your current purchase. This is what Sam Harris was talking about in our documentary when we interviewed him. When we get the thing, we're always looking over the shoulder of that thing toward the next thing. Yeah. The thing that we just purchased that was a a source of contentment, once it becomes obsolete a day or a week or a month or a year from now, it's now a source of discontent. It becomes the opposite of what the initial intention was. And and to answer Tim's question, no, I I didn't I'm actually the opposite of Ryan. I just feel like I kind of feel stupid now because I didn't know that I was wasting so much money and I knew that money was flying out, but I didn't really know what I was wasting it on. I made really great money. Uh, some people would say I was rich, but I was broke. And and so Ryan and I wrote about the the eleven. You know, you remember the, the 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 whole Jeff Foxworthy thing? You might be a redneck if. Oh yeah. Um, well, you might be broke if. Number one, you're living paycheck to paycheck. If you're spending every dollar you take home, you are, by definition, broke. More than 75% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck with little to no savings, which means that right off the bat, at least three-quarters of us are broke. Number two, you might be broke if you have credit card debt. There's no such thing as good debt. The debtor is always slave to the lender. Number three, you have student loan debt. Read our lips. There's no such thing as good debt, damn it. Number four, you might be broke if you have a monthly car payment. Number five, you might be broke if your income dictates your lifestyle. It should be the other way around. We should work to earn enough money to live, not live to earn enough money to buy junk we don't need. Until he breaks free from consumerism, the hoarder is slave to his hoard. Number six, you might be broke if you aren't saving for the future. 
We know, we know, you'll start saving, quote, tomorrow. But of course, tomorrow never comes because tomorrow will be today, tomorrow. And tomorrow's tomorrow will never be today. Ergo, begin today. Just a, a quick parenthetical here. If, if you get one thing from this, this, whole, this whole podcast episode is start a retirement account today. Even if you're, you can contribute $23 a week, a dollar a week, something, get the momentum you need, please. Uh, number seven, you might be broke if you're not healthy. Unhealthy equals depression. Yes, if you're unhealthy, statistics show that you're likely depressed. If you can't enjoy life, no matter how wealthy you are, then you're broke in a different way. You're broken. The richest man in the graveyard might have the most lavish tombstone, but he's still dead. Number eight, you might be broke if your relationships are suffering. Too often we forsake the most important people in our lives in search of money or ephemeral pleasures. We believe that our loved ones will always be around or that, quote, They'll understand. But when you're careless with something for long enough, it breaks. Number nine, you might be broke if you argue over money. Troubled relationships tend to end for one of two reasons. Arguments over money or arguments over sex or both. Even if the relationship doesn't end, it is difficult to grow if y'all are constantly bickering about finances. P.S. If you're arguing over sex or the lack thereof, then something's broken. Number 10. You might be broke if you're not growing. It doesn't matter how much cash you earn. If you're not growing, you are dying. We feel most alive when we cultivate a passion, drudge through the drudgery, and live our lives with purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And finally, number 11. You might be broke if you don't contribute as much as you'd like. Your worth isn't determined by your net worth. Real worth comes from contributing beyond yourself in a meaningful way. It was Martin Luther King who said, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, What are you doing for others? You see, giving is living. And it's much easier to give when you're no longer worried about how much money you're getting. Being broke is okay. Being broke without a plan to break the cycle is not. You see, given the above criteria, we've all been broke at some point in our lives. Everyone has been broke or broke in. True, we all need money to live. But you are not the contents of your wallet. What's more important than income is how we spend the resources we have. We personally know broke people who make six or even seven figures a year. We also know families who live on $25,000 a year, like uh, Mr. Mustache. There's a link here to his website. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Mr. Mustache, he and his, his wife and daughter, they live uh, on, on $25,000 a year and, and record every cent that they, that, that they spend. Uh, so we, we know families who live on $25,000 a year who aren't broke at all, because, who aren't broke at all, because they live within their means. They live deliberately. Real wealth, security, and contentment comes not from the trinkets we amass, but from how we spend the one life we've been given. Uh, Tim, that comes from our, our essay collection, Essential, so I'm going to send you a copy of that as well. You might be broke if you're 
married to Kim Kardashian and you're $53 million in debt. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, I joke. Mark writes in, what percentage of my income should I save? So I think what he's asking here is like each month, what, what percentage should he save? Uh, most economists would agree about 15 to 20%. Uh, that is what I have automatically debited from my uh, checking account into my savings accounts. Um, if I can put more in, then I will certainly do more than 15 or 20%. Um, but I am at the like the 15% level right now. That's automatically debited um, every single month. I'm reminded of the philosopher, the, the great hip-hop artist Scarface, a uh, lyric of his, uh, where he said, his dad told me that if you made $12, you put seven away and you live off the five and forget what everyone else says. Um, and, and so I, I look at that, and while I try to save as close as I can to 50% of what I make, it doesn't always happen that way. So like Ryan, I have 20% of my income, whatever it may be, automatically withdrawn from my checking account each month on the 15th of each month, and then it goes into to my Betterment account. And then any money I have left over at the end of the month when I'm doing my budget, I will just throw that into my Betterment account. And so I would, I would definitely in, encourage you to do the same. And in terms of, of retirement, I would also encourage you to just take a look at, at our retirement essay at theminimalists.com slash retirement. Blaze writes in, you suggest buying high-quality clothing for long-term use, but that's an investment many poor people can't do. Suggestions? I think the question itself is flawed because you certainly can purchase high-quality used clothing. When you purchase a new item, it loses about 90, a new clothing item, it loses about 90% of its value as soon as you walk out of the store. It's it depreciates more than just about everything else. In fact, uh, the the economist Julia Shore, who who is in our documentary, she talks about how gently used high end clothes now cost less per pound than a bag of rice. So it costs more money to eat than it does to clothe ourselves with with high end clothes. So so high end is probably the wrong term. Let's say just high-quality clothes. And that doesn't mean that it's necessarily inherently expensive, just like an expensive piece of clothes doesn't mean that it's inherently high-quality either. There are other factors that are going to determine whether or not it's high-quality, and you have to determine what is best for you and your situation. But I often buy my clothes used. Yeah, I'm thinking about when I was in high school, 16 years old, living in Tallahassee, Florida with my mom, and my four younger siblings. We lived in a double-wide trailer, um, very, very poor conditions. Uh, I was still able to budget and buy high-quality items because for me in high school, like, I wanted to appear rich at school, okay. <laughs> even though I was dirt poor. So, like, I went way out of my way. Uh, and you know this, man. Um, I went way out of my way to, like, go out and buy, you know, Tommy Hilfiger. And, this was the 90s. Yeah, this was the 90s. Tommy Hilfiger and whatever. Insert other popular 90s brands there. And my mom would always... Nautica. Yeah, Nautica. My mom would always give me crap for buying expensive clothes because she would always be like, you know, you have a week's worth of clothes. You could probably have three weeks' worth of clothes if you would just settle on some of your clothing. But uh, that's one of the things that I was unwilling to settle on. I made... Uh, about 60 to $90 a week as a bag boy working down there. 
I was still able to budget and save and provide uh, some high quality items for myself. So yeah, you probably, there are people out there who probably can't afford a lot of high quality items, but I would argue that buying fewer high quality items uh, versus a lot of uh, lesser quality items uh, is a much better solution. Yeah, and ultimately, we're working toward financial freedom, right? And and so it's up to you to determine what financial freedom looks like in your situation. For me, I do like to have nice clothes, but I don't need a, an entire hoard of nice clothes. I don't need a walk-in closet full of nice clothes. I need what's appropriate for my life. Let's move on to our added value portion of the show. Uh, This is where we each recommend uh, something that has added value to our lives recently. And because we're talking about money and finances today, I know we've already talked about Dave Ramsey a little bit and his baby steps and and, uh, total money makeover, which I definitely would recommend, and that will be in the show notes for you. Uh, But he has a phenomenal podcast. If you are in debt or having any kind of money questions or problems, uh, it's three hours a day, or I think it's 40 minutes per hour or whatever, uh, and he does three of them each day. And it's really amazing. And he is the master of money. And and so I he helped me out a lot throughout my 20s and even my early 30s as I was transitioning from living the debted life, the, the uh, stuck in debt life to becoming debt free and then becoming financially free. He helped out a lot. And so I would definitely recommend his podcast. I still tune in occasionally because there are these nuggets of wisdom that, that are in there that he is just, I mean, he, he's amazing. He has his daughter on there sometimes. She's great. And I would, I would definitely recommend you check that out in addition to his book. And also the, the Every Dollar app that I mentioned, that's his app and it's free, uh, everydollar.com. And so give, give it a shot if you need help budgeting. Yeah, I'm going to recommend an article uh, that the New York Times put out. It's these index cards that were put together by eight leading economists. So each economist kind of boiled down their best tips for approaching uh, financial freedom or good financial decisions. Uh, This is their lifetime of best practices. Right, and they've each boiled it down on one index card. So there are like eight uh, index cards to go through and read all of these tips. Sean will put that in the show notes, so you guys have a link to that. I'll give you a heads up, the New York Times, it is like a, a pay-for site, but you get 10 articles free a month. So uh, if you are someone who does not, like me, have a subscription to the New York Times, uh, don't worry, you can still go there and read this article because you get 10 free articles a month. Let's move on to our next segment, what we call Right Here, Right Now. This is where we get to talk about what's going on in our lives, the lives of the minimalists. So. It is March right now, and you know we're still doing uh, Tuesdays with the Minimalists, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, every Tuesday on Periscope and Twitter. Ryan and I will answer your questions live on video. You can tune in there, and then if you can't tune into that actual broadcast, it saves for 24 hours. We love the ephemeral nature of it, so we're not going to store it and, and put it up somewhere forever. But you have 24 hours to view that video if you want, if you want to listen to our, our tips. And you can ask us whatever you want during those. It's, it's sort of like open line Tuesday. You can ask whatever you want. We're, we're happy to answer. And even if we don't have an answer to your question, we'll give you an answer to a different question. It's, it's always one of our, our favorite things to do. So every Tuesday in March, 7 p.m., Periscope and Twitter, tune in for that. Also, I already mentioned everything that's going on with 
uh, our documentary, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. We're so excited to share that with you, though. I, there are so many people who went out and interviewed for this thing, from minimalist families and architects and directors and musicians and writers to neuroscientists and neuropsychologists and economists and parents and everything in between. And so there are all of these different perspectives of people who are using minimalism and simplicity to live a more deliberate, more intentional life. And we want to provide you with all these recipes. We have a phenomenal soundtrack in it it as well. One of our favorite musicians, a guy named Andrew Kappener, formed a band called We, V-V-E. And if you, you try to Google them, if you want, you're not going to find them. They formed a band just for this film. It's some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard, and it really, really makes the film great. Our director, uh, Matt Diavella, is a genius. He's done a ton of, of other work, but this is his first feature-length film. You are absolutely going to love it. I hope you get a chance to check it out. Just go to minimalismfilm.com, click on See the Film, and find the theater that is closest to you. Also, I'm teaching a, a quick writing workshop I just taught one uh, last month, and it was awesome. I had hundreds of people attend. I'm going to limit the seating on this one, but it's coming up in uh, in a few months. It's June 26, 2016. It's called How to Write Better. It's a very attenuated version of my four-week-long class. You can get all the details on that at howtowritebetter.org. And uh, we just put up a coffee house tour at theminimalists.com slash coffeehouse. And it's also on Instagram. We're at the minimalists there. Ryan and I opened a coffee house recently uh, down in St. Petersburg, Florida. And we're really excited to give you a tour of that coffee house with our friends uh, Sarah and Joshua Weaver and Chris Costanza. We, uh, we decided to go into business with them because they're very intentional about how they source their coffee, and they're very intentional, intentional about, about what they're doing uh, when it comes to operating a business and contributing to the community around them. I'm also going to be down there. from uh, So this, this episode is airing on uh, March 8th. I'm going to be in town March 9th through the 17th. And I'm attending the minimalist.org meetup at 7 p.m. on uh, March 9th. So if you're listening to this in time and you're anywhere in the Florida or the Tampa Bay area, come on out to the minimalist.org meetup there. I'm going to be speaking and, and talking with everyone and answering questions at that event. It is at Bandit Coffee Company, uh, which is the coffee house we open. And you can get all the details over at uh, theminimalists.com slash coffeehouse. Speaking of minimalist.org, we'd love for you to connect with open-minded people. So we've provided this platform for you. If you want to connect with open-minded or like-minded people, just visit minimalist.org. We have free local meetup groups in 100 different cities and eight different countries. And if we don't have a meetup group near you, we have an online city. So there's no excuse. You can find accountability partners. You can find support. You can find new people to to surround yourself with who are going to help you through whatever transitions you are going through. All right, finally, here are some voicemail comments from our listeners. Hey, guys, this is Austin from San Francisco. And something that I've been focusing on more in my my post-decluttering days of minimalism is just to be more present with how I feel. So most of the time, we're so anxious and so worried and busy that we forget to even stop and just take note uh, of what's happening right in front of us. Uh, I'll give an example. Th- uh, this is a tip I, I learned through uh, Andy Potacombe, I think is how you say his name, the man uh, behind the guided meditation app Headspace. Each time you sit down or get up from a chair, 
try to make a conscious effort to focus on the physical movement of your body and the sensations that might come along with that. It, that sounds really easy when, when it's said. You know, I certainly thought it did when I first heard about it, but I think people will be surprised at how difficult the task is in practice. Uh, when, when we get up or when we sit down, our brains are usually already thinking about what we should be doing next. Uh, and trying to be uh, more mindful of this simple action has had a profound effect on helping me calm down my thoughts, uh, my mental clutter, so to speak, if only for just a few minutes. And, and that's something I think that I've I've really been thankful to to have found out about in in the recent weeks. Hey guys, this is Emily from Boston. I just had a comment. Um, I found this pretty awesome app. It's called Declutter, but without the E. Um, the point of it is for all those people like myself and my husband that have old CDs, DVDs, Xbox games, PlayStation games. You download the app, um, and then you can scan each individual CD with your phone. Um, and then some some CDs you only get like ten cents for. Some, believe it or not, Rob Zombie, I got like two dollars and fifty cents for. Um, you print out a pre-paid um, for label and box it up and send it to them and get money for it. Hey guys, this is Caitlin Hampton and I'm calling from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, someone was talking about how they feel really stressed about when they're trying to sell their clothes or, you know, they feel like they can make all this money from their clothes and they're not sure how to go about doing it. And I felt the same way because I have recently cleared out my own closet. Um, but what I did, and for some reason it seems so much easier when you choose to use your phone instead of trying to use a desktop or a laptop. At least that's how I feel. There's an app called Poshmark, and it's, it's mainly geared towards women selling their clothes or shoes or purses, but I've listed eight pairs of shoes on there, and over the course of two, three months, people have slowly started buying them. And it's really awesome because they someone can offer to pay a certain price for your stuff, and then you can bargain with them. So, you know, you end up getting however much you think it's worth to you, and oftentimes that just meant selling an old pair of shoes that maybe cost me $80, but then I sell it for 20 or $15, and to me it's worth it because you get a prepaid label, and you just put it in the USPS, and they send it off to your person and direct deposit it into your bank account. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things, because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing think that you need every little thing you think that you need every little thing that's just feeding your greed oh I bet that you'd be fine without it every little thing that you gotta have every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for Gotta grab, oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it. So take your eyes away, or take.